Brothers and sisters, let us now read together what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 35. There we find God's word summarized as follows. What does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity? No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. After the sermon, we will sing together from Psalm 135 to stanzas 7, 9, and 10. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, our catechism now brings us to the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a graven image. The Lord God does not want his people to make any visible image of him in any way. That is what the heathens do with their gods. They carve or cut or hew or mold for themselves an image which they subsequently treat as an object of worship. Their slides were greatly influenced by what went on around them, for they too, throughout their history, fell prone to that same kind of pagan worship. We no longer do that, do we? And so, isn't this commandment somewhat dated? The whole idea is absurd. Even unbelievers today do not cut figures of wood or mold them from other materials in order to worship such an image. Man nowadays is too sophisticated for that. Oh sure, the second commandment may still have been applicable at the time of the Reformation in the 16th century. At that time, the Roman Catholics had all kinds of images in the churches, in the churches when they worshipped images of so-called saints. You still will find that in Roman Catholic churches. And these saints served as idols through whom you could have access to God. But the churches of the Reformation resolutely renounced such a practice. There were even some individuals who wrongfully took the law into their own hands and stormed the church buildings of the Roman Catholics and violently destroyed and damaged the images which they found in there. They wanted to eradicate that practice by force. But this is a different age. We don't worship God through images anymore. 
it is not likely that we as Reformed Christians would fall into that same sin again, would we? Is that really true? As we will see, this commandment still very much applies in this day and age. For for we too create wrong images of God. How do we do that? Well, that's what we will deal with this afternoon. The theme is as follows. Do not make the wrong image of God. Then we will look at two things. First of all, at the wrong image. And then in the second place, in the right image. It is important to understand in what way the heathen peoples during biblical days worshipped these man-made gods and why it was so attractive to them. For the Israelites fell into the same trap. That is what they did already at the very beginning of their nationhood. They were just barely out of Egypt, having been delivered by the powerful hand of God. And what did they do? They made a golden calf. That golden calf was supposed to represent the Lord God who had delivered them from Egypt, from the land of slavery. They did not have in mind any other God, any other God than Yahweh, the Lord, the God to whom Moses was speaking to at that moment on Mount Sinai. The golden calf was intended as a representation of the Lord himself. And the question that we would ask ourselves today is, why would they do that? What do they get out of it? Do they not know that some man-made object is dumb and deaf? That in reality they are calling upon an inanimate object poured from metals or fashioned from wood or stone? Do they not know that such an object possesses no power whatsoever? Well, don't think that the people of that day were unaware of that. They were not stupid. They knew that what they were worshipping was nothing else than a worthless block of wood or granite or metal. And yet, the people of that day could not see themselves worshipping any god without making such an image. Why is that? What did they have in mind when they worshipped these man-made objects? Well, an image refers to a representation. And so to the heathens, these objects were representations of something invisible. In their imagination, they believed that their gods lived on the tops of the mountains or that they lived above the clouds. Think about the priests of Baal who called upon their god when Elijah challenged the priests of Baal on top of Mount Carmel. It is clear that they knew that they were praying to a god they could not see. They knew that their God was invisible. And that is why Elijah mocked them with their false worship and said when it was clear that Baal was powerless to send fire from heaven, shout louder. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. Yes, like us, they too believed that their gods did not have their dwellings here on this earth. They believed them to live above the clouds somewhere where they could not be seen. 
And so, why have images? Well, they wanted to make these gods visible through the images that they made. They used their imagination in order to come up with an image of the god above the clouds that would represent one of its main characteristics. There were many different kinds of gods. For example, a god of fertility represented by a cow or a god of power in the form of a bull or an image of a lion or a leopard to represent swiftness and speed and strength, etc., There was a God for everything. And they made images of them all which they would worship. They did that because they thought that in this way you could flatter and thereby influence those gods. The invisible image stood for the deity itself. If you worship the image of the God, then in actuality you were worshiping the God himself. The image became the God. By worshipping the image, they believed that they could tap into the power of the God. That in this way, they could bring forth through the God, for example, an abundant crop. Or to have the God help them in battle. Or to still the powers of nature. And to do all kinds of other things over which they had no control themselves. For the image acted as a kind of transformer through which the power of their imaginary gods were channeled. As long as they were plugged into that transformer, they would also have contact with the actual god that the image represented. And so that is what happened when on Mount Sinai the Israelites made a golden calf. They did not want to wait any longer for Moses to come down from the mountain. They were becoming impatient. They knew that it was Yahweh who had revealed himself to Moses, who had led them out of the land of Egypt. They had experienced his power, and now they wanted to honor him and to tap into his power. And they had learned from the heathen practices of the Egyptians as to how to do that. They treated the Lord God the same way as the Egyptians treated their gods. They made an image of him by crafting a golden calf, which stood for power and fertility. But in order to receive some of those magical qualities of the God, you have to do more than just make an image of him. You also have to perform elaborate rituals and to make sacrifices to him. That is how you please the God. But you have to do the ritual in the right way. You have to be very accurate, for you do not want to anger that God. If you did not perform the ritual properly, then that God whom you were worshipping would become angry, and he would turn against you. That is how the heathens explained the various calamities and the broken conditions of human existence. That is how they made sense out of their world. Things such as defeat in war, natural disasters, illnesses, etc. These things, so they made themselves believe, only happened because they were not accurate enough in their rituals. Their gods were displeased. They did not honor the God in the way that they were supposed to. And so they would perform their rituals over and again in order to please that angry God. 
And so their worship depended not on faith, but on the accuracy of the rituals. As long as you do what is expected of you, then the gods will not be angry. No doubt those priests on Mount Carmel were convinced that the only reason that they failed in not receiving the aid of their god was that they did something wrong in the ritual. And that is why they performed their rituals time and again in the hope of getting it right. That is what their worship consisted of. Worship and appeasement through the exactness of the various rituals. Now then, let me ask you. Do you think that we are immune from that kind of worship? It may surprise you that I ask this question. But think about it. Do we not have the same tendency in our worship? We sometimes think as well that God can be appeased as long as we have the right rituals. He is on our side as long as we make all the right moves. We make many stipulations. The one will have a different list from the other. But a list may have some of the following elements. Go to church twice every Sunday. Don't do all kinds of other things on Sunday, such as work and certain recreational activities, biking, swimming, knitting, driving long distances, reading secular books, listening to the radio or watching TV. And when it concerns the actual worship, we also have some definite rituals which we are very reluctant to change. Do not come up with something which we are not used to, such as singing a hymn, changing the order of the liturgy, things like that. As long as we watch out for those things, then we do not have to be afraid of backsliding or of God becoming angry with us. For if we do those things right, we are on the right track. And when it comes to our own personal lives, we also have some definite rituals, praying before and after meals, sending our kids to our own schools, sending them to catechism. Now, when you hear this list, then you will think of it as a mixed bag. There are some things in there that we should do and others that we shouldn't. And the one, as I said, will have different things on this list than the other. Please understand that there is nothing wrong with having do's and don'ts for yourselves and for your family and in church. As a matter of fact, we should have them. We should be careful as to how we worship God. We have to honor Him. It is very important. But there is one thing that you have to keep in mind and ask yourself, why do I have such a list? Is it because I believe that by doing these things and by keeping these rituals that then I will be able to earn my salvation? Is that list a means to an end? In other words, are the rituals and the ceremonies your religion? Is that what you think distinguishes you from the world and even from other Christians? Well, if that is the way it is with you, then you are on the wrong track. And then you are in the camp of the way that the heathens worship their gods. What do the scriptures tell us? Well, the Lord God warns strongly against formalism. He tells the Israelites not to have a false sense of security about their worship. Ritualism 
on its own means nothing at all. Oh, sure, there were very strict regulations for the Israelites themselves. Just think about the elaborate instructions the Lord God gives regarding this temple service. He gives rule upon rule, regulation upon regulation, and also he gives us many other rules by which to live. But he does not mean thereby that the rules and the regulations as such give us the means by which we can earn our favor with him. That is what David says, for example, in the familiar Psalm 51. He says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. What then does the Lord God want from us? Well, David goes on further to explain, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David is not saying here that they should no longer come to the temple to make sacrifices. Not at all. But he says it has to be done with the right attitude. It has to be done from the heart. Else those sacrifices mean nothing. The Lord God wants us to serve him from our hearts. He wants us to put our trust in him. He wants us to put our faith in him. He wants us to love him. And we have to do it out of a love that we have for God. Faith is the first and most important requirement. And so the Lord God in effect says to us, I do not want some outward ritual, but I want you to be devoted to me with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. Oh, sure, it is good to have your traditions, your formalities and your ceremonies, but don't make them the object of worship itself. Don't think that ritualism, outward ritualism, will save you. That your salvation depends on having all the rituals just right. If your heart and your mind is right before me, then you will not insist on your own way, but on my way. Brothers and sisters, not everything is prescribed exactly. Not all the traditions in the church are sacred. There are different ways of doing certain things. How do you know? that is spiritually discerned. If your heart is right before the Lord, then you will know. And then you will know that God wants things to be done decently and in good order. That is the rule that he gives. But within that, there is some movement. And we must also watch that we do not form false images of God ourselves. For that is also a tendency that we have that we form a mental image of God, for example, by thinking that God is a God of love only, who does not want us to expose and deal with sin in our own lives or in the lives of others. That is how many people of the world think about him. They believe that because of their good works, they will receive a place in heaven. And therefore, they do not worry even about going to church about, or about all the other things that belong to true worship. God is a God of love, so they say, and he will not reject me. He will see my good works and reward me. But we must be careful not to suffer from the same delusion. 
to think that God is so full of love that he does not really care where or how we worship him. That you can worship him in nature, for example. Or that you can go to another church to worship him. It doesn't really matter to him. For you find his children in all kinds of different churches. He will overlook the imperfection of all the other churches. After all, our church isn't perfect either. But the point is that in certain things the Lord God does want perfection. Some more about that in a moment. Nor may we go to the other extreme and make God out to be a God who is constantly angry with us. A God who knows no mercy. A God who is always angry with us and who demands the impossible. For both pictures that of a God of love only and that of a God who is full of wrath only are against the way he has revealed himself in his word. He is both merciful and full of wrath. A true believer goes to the word of God in order to try to understand that, to dig into it, to let God's word speak to him. Sometimes we think that we have a God who has no eyes. We think that God cannot see what we are doing. In this way we can hide behind the ritualism of the trappings of religion while during the week we lead an unrepentant life, not having the zeal for the Lord and his kingdom. All you do is go through the motions. Sometimes we think of God as a God without ears. We think he doesn't answer us any longer. We were disappointed because we prayed for him for a certain thing, and then in the end it didn't really happen, and so we stopped praying. It can also be at times that we see God as a God without arms, who is powerless to help, and we so we seek comfort and strength from other sources. Or that we see God as a God who is asleep. He doesn't know what's going on in the world. He seems to be oblivious to the sufferings of this world. And so the list can go on and on. But I'm sure that you get the picture. The second commandment is still very applicable for us today. For the people of God's church. How then does he want to be served? Well... And that also brings us to our second point. He wants us to worship him in spirit and truth, as he has revealed himself in his word. Only in his word do you get the right image of God. For the Lord our God is so great and wonderful that we could never capture him in human images. God has too many qualities for that, and they are too great. You cannot represent them. Isaiah says in chapter 40, verse 25, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? God's glory and greatness cannot be molded into an image fashioned in accordance with our own conceptions and in accordance with our own limited imagination. For we will always do an injustice to him. God is seated on high. He resides in heaven. That is where his throne is, and he cannot be dragged down to our level. That would be absurd and pretentious. It is true that God does speak about himself in human terms. And therefore he does speak about his eyes, his ears, and his arms, and his hands. 
But he only speaks about himself in that way so that we can have some inkling, some understanding of who he is. And so if we want to have an accurate image of him, then we have to go to the scriptures, to God's word, to the Bible. And that is why the reformers fought for the formulation as we have it in our catechism. God wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. And that is why in our church the word must take a central place in the worship service. He wants to be given the honor and glory. And he does not want you to go to a church that is Arminian in its theology. And he does not want you to go to a church where you are told that the creation in six days is not to be taken literally. And that God also uses evolution as part of his creation process. He does not want you to go to a church either where tradition and formalism is the religion. He wants you to go to a church where every attempt is made to have God's truth maintained. It does matter to God where you serve. It matters greatly to him. Else he would not have warned against all the false worship and the heresies which abound. We should not come up with any ideas which detract from God's word. There are those who want to embellish the worship service in numerous ways. They would like to see choirs, the most beautiful organ, and even add all kinds of other instruments. And they would also like to see all kinds of other things added. They believe that these things will enrich our worship service. They want to spice it all up a little. But the treasure of the church is not the organ or a choir or the liturgy, but the preaching, the true preaching is the great treasure of the church. For in the preaching do we see the true image of God as he reveals himself in his word. The catechism does not make any mention of the curse and the blessing which is also contained in this commandment. And that's too bad. But it does require our attention. And you know what it is. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The Lord says that he will punish the children for the sin of the fathers. That seems unjust, doesn't it? How can he punish the children for the sins of the fathers? Well, what the Lord God means here is that if the fathers go astray in their worship, if their worship consists of nothing more than ritualism, for example, then the children will likely do the same. They will easily follow in their parents' footsteps. Or it may be that they are so turned off from the hypocrisy of their parents that they turn their backs on the church and on God. Or if the parents do not take the true worship of the, God, of the Lord seriously enough, being sporadic in their church attendance, then also the children are likely to be even more slack. It is important to remember this one thing. To serve God is to image him. 
God made us in his image in paradise. At that time, God was praised in that the Father in heaven could recognize in his children his own characteristics, his characteristics of righteousness and truth, for example. But sin damaged that image to such an extent that the Father could no longer recognize himself in us. Through Christ, that image has been restored. And that is why Christ is now central in the preaching and in our lives. For he is our righteousness and truth and wisdom from God. He supplies our imperfection, for he fulfilled the law for us. Through faith, we have become one plant with him. And so we are renewed time and again by the wholesome juices of the vine. And then our prayers are heard, O God, recreate us in the image of your Son. And that is the prayer that should come from our lips and from our hearts. Believe, brothers and sisters, that Christ is the only object of your worship. Do not make for yourself any graven images. Worship God in the way that he has revealed himself in his word. Worship him in the way that he has shown himself in his everlasting covenant. Do not rely on your own imagination. Do not rely on ritualism, but rely on the word of God. That is where you find him. That is where you will see who he truly is. And if you do that, God will also bless you. But not only you, but also your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. For the Lord shows his steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. Amen.